0: When I was uh, 21 or 22 years old, I was in college and I was uh, living in a house, ooh, kind of a party house, <laughs> with uh, like four or five other people. And one night, it was just like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, some week night. I was walking up the stairs to my bedroom, and I just fell. And I thought it was so strange, and I didn't really have the strength to easily get back up. And my roommates came over, and I'm like, and they're like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "I oh, am yeah, fine." And they're like. That's really weird, you know. You're not. You haven't been drinking or anything like that. So, you know, I think we should. We should take you to the hospital. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. But they. But they insisted, and we all went over to the Georgetown Medical Center, which was just down the street. So I'm like, okay, well, we can drive there. And and the doctors said, you know, your blood pressure is 220 over 120. And they're like, you're looking at like some serious kidney failure and some serious problems here if we don't get this managed and and figure out why, you know, your blood pressure is so high. Well, anyways, they ended up I ended up starting a medication for hypertension at like 22 years old. And I didn't like it because it had a lot of side effects I didn't like. So I took the the uh, atenolol or whatever it was, uh, you know, for like a month or so. And I'm like. So am I am I already starting my cardiovascular trouble? Because it was so ramp it's so rampant in my family. Both uh, both my grandparents on my mother's side, you know, died of heart attacks really young. And there was also cardiovascular disease on my dad's side. So I thought, you know what, I gotta I gotta do something. I, I wanna learn more about this because it's hitting me early. Maybe maybe somehow this is this is gonna change my life in a positive way. And so then I embarked on a lifelong journey into health and eventually mindfulness and meditation. But I would say that that was a significant turning point in my life. I really started to look at my lifestyle. And I had a great doctor at, uh, at Georgetown who kept meeting with me because she was so curious why like a 22-year-old was eating hypertension medication. And she asked me lots of personal questions, which at the time was not so common, 20 20 years or whatever, to be asking people, you do this, do that. And I remember one of my doctors said, I said, well, isn't there anything I could do to reduce the medication, maybe not take the medication? And he said, no, just do it what you normally do. But if you take this, you won't have to worry about it. (laughs) So I said, but I'd like you to tell me about what my lifestyle is, because I'm open to changing so I found a new doctor at Georgetown, and her and I worked together. She studied my diet and my alcohol intake at the time, which was pretty high. <laughs> in college. And I was ready, and I and I made, made changes. And in a number of years, a few years, the hypertension got managed, and I never went on medication again. And and so. That's why I picked this topic tonight, because I spent so much time with that that I could just talk about it. I'll share with you some of the research, some of the scientific research that, that I've become aware of in our field of psychology, some of the interesting studies that are going on right now, and some of the insights from meditation and mindfulness traditions around the world, and just things that i personally practiced. But I want to emphasize that everything that I talk about Snyder, that we discuss together is just perspectives. Everything I ever share in this group I just consider to be a perspective. It is in no way saying this is what you should do or that this will even work for you. It's just sharing. Mm -hmm. It's just ideas and I'm open to your ideas because my ideas could be wrong. But they're ultimately just ideas and just perspectives. I also treat all the scientific research that I come across as just another perspective. So everything should be treated as a clue to our health, to our um, journey into self-discovery and trying to figure out the best way to live or how we can live in in a healthier way that may contribute to our our longevity. But there's some interesting clues that we'll, we'll talk about tonight. So I want to start by saying that in... California in 1910, there was a psychologist named Dr. Terman, and he was curious about human longevity. Limited with where he could go at the time, not as easy for him to go all over the world as scientists are doing today to uncover the secrets of longevity, he decided, I will follow 1,500 kids for their whole life, and I will document everything about them. But not just any kids, because if I start following like a kid who's born sick or with with severe asthma, that's not going to tell me much about how people could live long. So he decided, I will find 1,500 kids that are relatively bright and relatively healthy and normally functioning. And and I will start to document everything I can about their life for as long as I live. This is Dr. Turner. How does he find out who's bright and who's healthy? Not just from one source, from teachers, parents, family members, siblings, until he feels confident that, yeah, that's a relatively bright child. And when they were open and willing to join the the study, he started his research. And this is the most thorough investigation into the lives of Americans and what may be affecting the way people live and their longevity, why there may be premature death. And obviously, Dr. Turman couldn't live long enough to complete that study, and that's one of the fascinating aspects of this undertaking. Starting in 1910, and he passed away in the 50s, and only in the last 5 to 10 years is this research being summarized and being examined. So his successors followed it up. and more people got involved in the 90s, and then in the early part of the century, when all the participants had passed away, they start have been compiling. And they published a book recently called The Longevity Project. All in all, subsequent researchers found that personality does influence, at least from this perspective, the lifespan of a human being. And they did all kinds of assessments to get all kinds of data on personality he found that among a lot of different categories of personality, one was one of the strongest predictors of longer life, and that was called conscientiousness. Conscientiousness in 1910 is something akin to mindfulness in the 21st century. (laughs) So those that were more mindful or more conscientious tended to live longer on average. If you're more conscientious, you may be more self-aware and you might be able to reduce the amount of stress you inflict on yourself. But the life expectancy in 1910 was 47 years, so things have changed a lot. Which is also to say that this study can only tell you something truthfully about longevity for someone born in 1910. It can't tell you much about people born today, but again, it can give a clue. So those who read this and go, oh, so this conscientiousness will definitely lead to longer life, no, not necessarily. It would have in 1910, at least with what we knew from that study with the data that we had, with the factors that we were aware of. Now, if you're not conscientious enough, you may not be aware that, you know, I need some routine maintenance or I need to take care of some of my health. You may be less likely to take care of an ailment so on. You may be more likely to engage in what we know to be unhealthy patterns of behavior um, and have a more unhealthy diet and so on. So some of those things may be the factors. I have uh, brought the personality assessment, uh, something very similar to what Dr. Terman administered to the participants. So the way this assessment works, this conscientiousness scale, is there's a series of statements, and you'll need to rate the statements on a scale from one to five. One means that you feel that statement about you, all these will apply to you, is either one, very inaccurate, two, moderately inaccurate, three, neither accurate nor inaccurate, four, moderately accurate, five, very accurate. So we're going from 1, not accurate at all, up to 5, very accurate. There are 12 statements, so I'll say 1, you put the number 1, and your score. So for the first statement, I am always prepared. (laughs) 1, very inaccurate, up to 5, very accurate. If you didn't bring a pen, don't put a (laughs) 5. Number two, I leave my belongings around. Number three, I actually get cold when I think of something cold. Four, I enjoy planning my work in detail. Five, I make a mess of things. Six, I get chores done right away. Seven, I have sometimes had to tell a lie. Eight, I often forget to put things back in their proper place. Nine, I like order. Ten, I shirk my duties. Anybody know what shirk means? (laughs) Yes. Board off, yeah, push away. Number 11, I follow a schedule. And number 12, I am persistent in the accomplishment of my work and ends. Okay, so here's how we add it up. First, take out, cross off questions three and seven. Or uh, statements three and seven. Statement three was, "I actually get cold when I think of something cold." Seven was, "I have sometimes had to tell a lie." Those are filler questions, just to keep people honest in their <laughs> answers and not getting too obsessed with scoring high or scoring scoring low. Similarly, a number of questions will need to be reversed because when people start thinking high is good, they just naturally uh, over. Or over or undervalue themselves, and when Dr. Terman did this, he didn't do it with the participants. He did it with the family members and the teachers. So, if you really want to know better, <laughs> you would have to give these to your spouses and kids and people. So, for qu- for statements two, mark these two, five, eight, and ten. Two, five, eight, and ten, flag. <coughs> Reverse those numbers. So if you put a 1, change it to 5, 2 to 4, and 3 stays the same, and conversely, 5 to 1, 4 to 2, 3 stays the same, and now you can add up those numbers, get a total score, you'll get a total score between 10 and 50, because there's only 10 10 (laughs) statements. If your score is bet- between 10 and 24, it's low on the conscientiousness scale. If you scored between 37 and 50, then you scored in the higher, in the high portion of conscientiousness scale. So, what does this mean? This means that it's something to be aware of, it's a clue. Dr. Terman, at his research, when studied by the subsequent team of scientists, found that those participants who were conscientious in early part of life, in childhood, and then conscientious later in life, lived the longest. Those who were not conscientious in the early part of their life, but were conscientious later in life, that's me, (laughs) they lived second longest. Those who were conscientious in the beginning of life, then not conscientious later in life, They were third, and those who were not conscientious at any time in their life, they had the shortest lifespan. So, what does this mean? It means that this is malleable, and personality to some extent is malleable, but you would have to work on it. Mm -hmm. Some of these statements uh, at one time were very inaccurate for me, and now are very accurate for me. If if you saw any of my residences in college, you would have not believed it was me. And I always told people when they saw my mess, like at my desk and things, I said, this is my system. Someone said, how do you find anything in here? <laughs> I said, I have a system. <laughs> I, unfortunately, and a few of us here are part of the musical world profession and, and uh, they have very short life spans. <laughs> <laughs> Musicians don't live very long. but. If you're a really conscientious musician, as I'm trying to be, maybe I can <laughs> offset some of those uh, risk factors. Okay, so, yeah, wherever you may have fallen on this assessment can give you some insight in things that you you can be aware of or you can work on in your personality if you want to grow in this aspect or change in this aspect. This doesn't mean that conscientious people didn't do anything fun or didn't do uh, anything that was ever out of the ordinary. It was just that they did things with purpose. There's more purpose behind the things that conscientious people do. So yes, they're more aware of their surroundings and probably less likely to get in an accident. It didn't mean that they didn't have fun and didn't do adventurous things. It just meant that they were very aware and a lot more purposeful in their activities, in their lifestyle, in their choices, and the decisions that they made for their lives. One of the strongest predictors of premature death in this study was divorce. And probably many of us here are connected to divorce in some way. So the participants whose parents were divorced lived on average five years younger or shorter than everybody else. Now, there's a lot of other factors to this though and although some of us may be involved in in that experience or have that as a risk factor in our life that's not the be-all end-all to the story but let's just process for a moment together why might that have such an impact on lifespan there's a lot higher chance of poverty at that time uh, being raised by a single parent and that was true a lot of the children who grew up uh, in in that situation did struggle financially. I always tell people in therapy who are dealing with divorce, parents or especially parents, that the best thing they can do is to respond positively to the adversity because they're then modeling for the children how to respond in in a healthy way to crisis. So it's also an opportunity to show resilience and to teach resilience. To be a child of divorce in the 1930s and 40s is much different than being a child of divorce in the 21st century. It's much more common, yeah. So the stigma is much less than the 21st century than it would have been in the 1930s and 40s. I even know somebody who felt stigmatized because his parents weren't divorced <laughs> growing up recently. Strange thought, right? But it's possible, right, because more than 50% of first marriages end in divorce. And the rate is higher today for second and subsequent marriages. So in all likelihood, it's getting to a point where it's more likely that the parents are divorced than not. There are some other changes that are pretty common for children after divorce. Academic performance tends to go down. Among people whose parents are divorced, overall they seek less education in the academic world. Why that is? Probably because when you're going through a divorce, your engagement tends to scale back. If that plays out long-term, less education means people are going to then earn less, struggle more, and have lots of other challenges, which then may ultimately impact their health and their lifespan. So what to do if, if this is one of your risk factors, as it probably is for half the room, then to be mindful of it to increase your conscientiousness. Because among the divorced, or among the children of the divorced, those who were more conscientious did better than those who were less conscientious. So there are other, always other assets that you may able, be able to uh, take advantage of. And though some of us may have that as a factor, Other people have genetics, and like I said, my predisposition to cardiovascular disease was there. So I responded with a lot of conscientiousness and lifestyle change. They found that overall, people who were religiously involved tend to live slightly longer. Sense of community. And sense of community is probably the biggest part of it. It's probably more of a factor than any particular practice. That may, or, uh, or belief system within the religious organizations. Because this applied to all different kinds of religions. It was what the researchers believed was the community, the belonging, you're more likely to have somebody help you if you're in a crisis, if you belong to a community or a tribe, or you have a wider social circle. Because those who had wider social circles lived longer also. So it may not be religion per se, but some of the perks that come with belonging to a religious group. Scientists don't know for sure why do women live so much longer than men. Everywhere in the world, every culture, women have longer life expectancy than men. Some of the things that people end up saying, well, a man's less likely to, you know, go for his prostate exam and things like that. But, But that's not something inherent to being a man. That's a behavior. That is a... A social stereotype. Whether or not a man does that or not may not have everything to do with biology, so they're still trying to figure out, figure out that. Okinawa has the highest concentration of centenarians. It's an island in Japan, and Japan, I believe, has the longest life expectancy also of, of, of the countries. But there are four other regions in the world that have a concentration of centenarians on par with Okinawa, and these have been identified by researchers as the five blue zones of the world. One is Okinawa. Uh, Two is Ikaria, Greece. Three is Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica. Four is Sardinia, Italy. And the fifth one is in the United States. Loma Linda, California. you know where that is? <laughs> it's in San Bernardino County. It's east of Los Angeles a little bit. It has a high population of Seventh-day Adventists. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Which is why uh, they have a higher concentration of centenarians there's a specific lifestyle associated with Adventist spirituality. Why do you think Okinawa has high life expectancy? Japanese culture tends to have a positive perspective on aging and values and respects the elders. There's a a doctor named Dr. Mario Martinez that studies culture and its effect on biology. He calls it biocognition. Cultural perceptions are different all over the world. And every culture has a certain perspective on the aging process. Japan has a very positive one. But there are certain cultural perspectives that actually adversely affect our biology. For example, in in Japan, the word for menopause is konenki, which translates to second spring or something like that. That's pretty positive. There is a word in certain countries for hot flashes in menopause, that means shame. Interestingly, the highest rates of medical complications in menopause are in those cultures. And the lowest rate is in Japan. We need to be aware of our own cultural attitudes and our cultural perspectives that we are surrounded by. What is the American perception, cultural perce- perception, about aging? Is it positive? No. No. So, I think we would be lying if we, most of us, if we said, yeah, I don't care about getting older and all the things that come with it. I think we're always fighting against that. We know that we don't really like that and we don't want to have that attitude toward aging. But it is also really hard to sort of separate the two, because we know the society doesn't value it. The society doesn't value the elderly. Right? Overall. So when society doesn't value the, the elderly, it's very hard to escape that perception towards yourself. You have to surround yourself and build a subculture. The only way is to, truly, uh, to, to protect yourself against this is to truly build a subculture, which means I have to limit some of the impressions that are negative and I have to uh, accommodate and bring more positive ones into my world. An example of a subculture is Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a group of people that follow a 12-step strategy for staying sober. Those group of people are not necessarily how all Americans live, it's a subculture. And by being involved in that subculture, people succeed in achieving sobriety. We have to surround ourselves and bring in more subculture that supports the wellness of aging so that we can get to a place where we actually look forward to growing older. Because if you talk to a Japanese person, they'll probably tell you, I look forward to growing older. Why? Because I'm going to elevate in status. I'm going to elevate in society. I'm going to be more valuable to the society. We want to ward off aging in America because we actually feel like I'm less valuable to society, which is why there is a higher mortality rate for people after retirement because the part one of the factors is they're feeling less valuable to the community, to the society. So we have to actively and conscientiously put some strategies in place to help protect ourselves from that cultural aspect. That's Japan. And diet is healthy. You would think that there's a high fish intake, but, the, but actually among these five regions, the average meat and fish intake is three to four ounces five times a month. I'm not here to advocate plant-based diet. I'm just here to give you that clue that less uh, consumption of heavy proteins have translated into longevity for a lot of these populations. Well, let's think about that for a moment. People are always asking, "Where are you getting enough protein? But who in America is asking, are you getting too much protein? And the number one, well, one of the, the number one cancer in America, one of the leading causes of death is colon cancer. Colon cancer is directly correlated to high protein intake. So we should be asking ourselves, am I getting too much protein before asking ourselves, am I getting enough protein? But part of our cultural perception is we're strong people and strength is protein. If you want to be strong, you need a lot of protein. And if you're going to have more plants and less, less protein, less meat or heavy protein, because plants have protein too. I'm talking about the heavy protein, then culturally we would be intimidated by that. So that's something to be aware of. What else can you recognize among these five places that I mentioned? Okinawa, Ikaria Island in Greece, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia, Italy, and Loma Linda, California. What do they have in common? Access to water, warm weather, Beautiful places. So this is also a factor. You'd be pretty. You'd be feeling pretty good if you lived in these places. You'd want to live long. Another aspect of this is, when people are older in the United States, where do they go? Not all the time, but but it's it's a common stereotype that people go to Arizona and Florida, right? So part of this also is that if you're an older age and you're living in Chicago, not now with with global warming, but before, <laughs> that's kind of harsh. That's hard. If you slip on the sidewalk because it's icy in our traditional winters, that's going to increase your mortality. That's going to increase the mortality rates. So part of this, for me, right off the top, I'm saying, well, these are island tropical places, subtropical or, or close to tropical in the case of California. These are beautiful places where the weather is good and people are smiling because it's sunny all the time. So that's a factor. There's fresh food readily available in these places. You can go to farmer's markets all year round in these places. Let's come to the next one, in Greece. The people on this island had some of the highest intakes of olive oil. You might think, well, you know, that's fat and fattening, but it doesn't have cholesterol. Something to keep in mind is that plants don't have cholesterol trying to have more unrefined organic oil. Because when oil is refined, it's refined so that you can heat it up a lot. But when you heat it up a lot, or or fry foods in oil, you're changing the molecular structure. And when it becomes other kinds of fats that way, it's really hard for your body to break down. Certain trans fats have been shown to require 500 degree furnaces to really start to break it down. So these sort of things are going to contribute to digestive problems long term. So olive oil is good for you, but not when it's cooked and cooked and cooked. So a tip for having your own, making your own salad dressing or your, in your own cooking, put the oil on at the end in its unrefined, extra virgin, cold pressed, organic state. Pour it on your salads and put a little lemon juice. Or squeeze a lemon with a little salt and pepper and you have a salad, a salad dressing. To have salad is nice, but then people pour the salad dressing and the salad dressing is filled with preservatives and artificial flavors and all kinds of uh, you know other ingredients that we don't know what they even mean, words that we don't know how to pronounce. You'd be much better off just pouring a little olive oil on it. Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Plantains, bananas, yams, squash, corn, a lot of beans, some eggs, uh, some cheese, same with Italy, some cheese. In Italy, one of the strongest reasons for this particular part of Italy, Sardinia, was that there is still a lot of people who, who shepherd livestock from mountains down to plains into old age, so naturally, they're more active, which means having an active lifestyle is going to contribute to good health and longevity. And then this last one, Loma, Linda, California. So they have a concentration of Adventists that live there. Adventists follow a certain kind of traditional biblical diet, which is lots of whole grains, beans, legumes, seeds, nuts, figs, uh, some fruits, lots of leafy greens, some salmon, some fish. About (coughs) half of the Adventists don't have any meat and the other half have some salmon and things like that. So they have a significantly longer lifespan and they're concentrated in California. But there are Adventists all over the country. Why Loma Linda? it's like some of these other places, it's a beautiful place to live near, near the ocean. So now let's come to what we can learn from centenarians. Dr. Mario Martinez studies centenarians around the world, people who are already over a hundred. Different than Dr. Turman who followed kids from childhood throughout their life, Dr. Mario Martinez interviews people over hundred years old. Centenarians are the fastest growing segment of the human population, believe it or not. So somehow people are learning how to live longer. There are 75,000 centenarians in the United States. There are over three, three million around the world, something like that. The highest concentrations are in those five blue zone regions. Among the things we talked about in those five blue zone regions, Dr. Mario Martinez has found some other characteristics among centenarians around the world that he's interviewed. One, he finds that they are very resilient people. They tend to be very resilient in the face of adversity. They're very flexible. Tend to be spiritual but not necessarily very religious have a spiritual outlook. They tend to be creative and even into old age. When interviewing uh, one particular man, he recorded his conversation and went something like this. I like your vegetable garden, can you tell me about it? The 101 year old man says, I like it too, I like the way it's turning out, but you should come back in three or four years and see where I go with this. Another conversation, I understand you have a new love in your life, he says to a hundred year old woman. Yes, I like younger men. <laughs> so I got me an 80 year old beau who writes me poems. And this, one more conversation, he says to a hundred year old man, when was the last time you went to a doctor, sir? the man says it was a long time ago I'd say at least 30 years ago and what do your doctors had to say about it about that that you haven't been in 30 years I don't know they're all dead <laughs> <laughs> so what can you take away from some of those encounters yeah <laughs> humor optimism lightheartedness, heartedness not taking themselves too seriously also Part of living longer is having more time to figure out how to live well. I always think of my own life as I'm trying to get it right, you know, and all my mistakes I work on self-forgiveness, knowing, okay, now I can do this better in my 40s, now I can do this better in my 50s, now I can love better in my 60s, whatever it may be, but I want to get it right and I'm looking forward to getting it right. I'm looking forward to figuring out what the healthy diet is for me. I. I People will tell me I have a pretty healthy diet, but I'm continuously refining it and making changes since my hypertension in my early 20s. So I see it as an ongoing process and I bet for centenarians who are relatively healthy, they've had enough time to practice health, to practice the lifestyle that leads to healthy outcomes. So that's another way to think of it, is that when we practice certain healthy lifestyles, we get that longevity but we need time to do it and we have to look forward to that and that that builds the optimism and the lightheartedness whatever you don't have is of no use to you at least not in the present moment and to get better at identifying what one does have will make you feel more content and therefore build your inner resources for being resilient so let's shift gears to the last part of this just a little bit about longevity from the perspective of mindfulness traditions, because I believe that meditation is the great equalizer with all these factors. Meditation rebuilds the brain, as we've talked about in other groups, and we'll talk about again. It builds the frontal lobe, which is involved in executive decision-making and higher critical thought and judgment. It strengthens all the gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. It keeps the prefrontal cortex intact over time if you meditate 20-30 minutes a day. Ordinarily the brain develops up until 26 and it's not fully developed until around 26 and then it starts to deteriorate from 26 on to death. But in meditators it doesn't deteriorate. It stays relatively the same over the next 25 years, only if they have that practice. and so that's that's a reason to do it because it's going to rebuild the areas that are damaged by trauma and some of these other risk factors it's also going to improve the functioning in the cells it reduces inflammation in, on the cellular level and there's so many other scientific benefits so i always tell people learn to meditate practice meditation and you'll build a force field to protect yourself against all of the other variables and unknowns that maybe are lying ahead in your future. Two of the traditions that I have personally adopted in my way of life and that have greatly, I think, impacted and improved my health are some Taoist practices and yoga practices. few things that I can share with you about Taoist way of life is uh, the way that they eat, the routines that they follow, and the, the practices that they undertake specifically in Taoism and yoga are breathing practices. Qigong and pranayama are breath regulation techniques. In the West, we really aren't taught anything about breathing. Breathing is very essential to life, and we learn almost nothing about it. And yet, we do things with breathing just instinctively. <coughs> like if you're gonna lift something, you might breathe a certain way. If you learn to play an instrument or do some other things, you get some exposure to breath control. But when we go to the bathroom, we hold our breath. When you swallow, you hold your breath. Try to swallow and breathe at the same time. Can't. But do we even know this? We don't realize some of the things that's happening. In the East, people are taught all about the breath. So, how to eat? Well, basically there's a science of food combining in Taoist practices, which means that certain foods don't combine well with others. But it will be up to the individual to figure out what works for them. But generally speaking, heavy proteins don't digest super well with carbohydrates. The reason for this, or the science for this, is that carbohydrates are mostly digested in an alkaline medium in the stomach. And proteins are digested in an acidic medium in the stomach. But acid and alkalinity together tend to neutralize each other. So when you're producing these different secretions, it can slow down the digestive process. Long term, it can contribute to things like colon cancer. It creates more fermentation in the stomach and more problems digestively and acid reflux and things like that. Secondly, to chew the food thoroughly regardless of what you need. Gandhi used to say, drink your food, Eat your vegetables, meaning puree your food. Puree your food in the mouth because the stomach doesn't have teeth. If we're not mindful, we tend to swallow too soon, which means that larger particles of food go in the stomach, then your body produces more acid. Long term, that's not so healthy. And long term, that can contribute to digestive problems. When you do that, more saliva is released in the mouth. The saliva has enzymes that help to break down the food. Is it healthy to drink a bunch of water after you eat? It's a common practice. What do you think? Not really, why not? Well, if I've just finished my meal and then I pour a cup of water on the acid, what am I doing? Diluting it. So it's not so healthy to drink a glass of water routinely as many people do when they go out to eat. It's okay to drink drink it before because it's gonna flow right through your system. It will also give a sensation of uh, already having some portion inside you, it will reduce your intake. But you sip your water during the meal just to moisten the food and then wait at least 20 minutes before drinking. And if you do that, your digestion will be improved. It will contribute to good health. In Japan, and in other parts of these blue zones, specifically in Japan, they have a practice, I forget what it's called in Japanese, but it is, translates to eat 80% of your, stom- uh, of your stomach. Leave 20% after the meal. So Americans have the habit of eating to we're totally full, and feeling like that was the appropriate meal. But that's hard on your system, three meals a day. That's really hard for your cells and your digestive organs to operate under that condition. If you've If you think about it, it's sort of like your car is a little bit more efficient at three-fourths of a tank than full tank. Because it's a little bit lighter, it has the fuel that it needs, but it's not carrying as much of a load. The larger meal of the day should be in the middle of the day. Because research shows that when the sun is at its highest, your digestive capacity is strongest, and it's weakest in the middle of the night. So our last meal should be lighter, and we should tend not to eat too much right before bed, because after you eat, as long as you're standing or sitting, you have the aid of gravity to pull food from here down through your system. When you're horizontal and it's in the middle of the night, your cells are meant to rest, but instead they're working overtime, and they're working harder to move food horizontally against gravity. That will contribute to weight gain and a lot of other digestive problems. It will also condition the mind to want to be awake in the night to have food, and it will be harder to get quality sleep. And to have your night's sleep be spent digesting proteins, which take six to eight hours to fully digest, isn't really restful sleep. So to be mindful of that. After you eat, a yogic posture that is helpful looks like this. I think it's called hero's pose to sit on the back of your ankles. I couldn't do this when I first came to yoga, it was incredibly painful. <laughs> so if you can't sit this way, you just put a cushion till you, till you reach your point where it's comfortable. What this does from a yogic standpoint or from a Chinese standpoint is it channels prana or chi, but in the case of Western science, it reduces circulation to the lower half of your body, which doesn't need much energy while you're digesting. So to sit like that for 10-15 minutes will concentrate the blood flow and the energy flow to this region and it will support the digestive fire and the capacity of your body. And if you do that on a regular basis, your your system will function a little bit better. So that's a little bit about food and when to eat it, but to be mindful when you eat and in that and, and do it in that way. The most important thing to take away is what are you going to do every day for your rest of your life? If you have a piece of cake or a piece of bacon, no big deal. But if you're going to have bacon every day for the rest of your life, you're going to increase your risk of cancer by 20%. Cancer's already rampant. Why increase it 20%? To do something once in a while means almost nothing, I think, according to science. But if that's going to be what you're going to do as your habit for 25 years, then that will be your destiny. That's why it's really wise to think about this. What am I going to do? Is this going to become my habit? I'm, I try to be careful because I know if I do some things once, I'm going to want to do it tomorrow. And then I'm going to find that I do it all the time. And if it's not so healthy, I'm already programming my biology for premature problems, premature death. So think about it in that way. Not a big deal. If you like certain things, have them. Think about what is going to be your habit though. And What becomes your habit is going to be what's ultimately going to determine a lot of out- health outcomes. The life force is lost in this philosophy by talking like I'm doing. So I'm getting tired and drained <laughs> from speaking for 90 minutes. But but to do things purposefully, not a big deal. Gandhi didn't talk on Mondays to conserve his life force. So think about all the things that reduce your vitality. It's probably, from the Eastern perspective, lowering your chi, and from the Western perspective, draining our, our, our mojo. <laughs>